The Blaze Radio Network. On demand. Welcome to a discussion of radical fundamental principles of freedom, rational self-interest, laissez-faire capitalism, and individual rights. The Yaron Brook Show starts now. I uh, hope everybody's having a great weekend. Welcome to Yaron Brook Show, and um, a lot to talk about today. I, I want to do. I want to talk about a topic I've talked about many times uh, on the show, but I think it just bears repeating and repeating and repeating. And particularly, particularly these days, it 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 you know one needs to talk about it more and more and more. And that is American exceptionalism. What is it that makes America? Exceptional. What is it that make, makes America special, or at least, uh, I hate to say this, made America special? What is American uniqueness? Ayn Rand called the United States of America the only moral country in its founding in human history. What was so moral about that founding? And where have we gone wrong? Because I think we've gone wrong. And, and what is the history of that exceptionalism? So we're gonna, we're gonna talk about that, uh, today and we're gonna put it in the context of, of maybe the most controversial topic in the news right now, maybe the most controversial topic in the news, I don't know, anytime, but certainly right now, and that is immigration. I, I wanna, I wanna, I wanna combine this question of American exceptionalism and immigration and take it head on and take it straight on, uh, given the president's comments, uh, this last week, and I'll, I'll make an effort, given that the Blaze is a family network, not to repeat the, the, the words used by the President of the United States, uh, but uh, you all know what I'm talking about. So, uh, But let, let's talk about what is it that makes America great? What is it that makes America exceptional? Why is this, and I think it's true, the only moral country in human history at its founding in spite of all its flaws, in spite of all its difficulties, some of those flaws we will talk about, the greatest country that has ever, ever been on the face of this earth, and still a country that so many people from everywhere around the world dream about, strive to come to, uh, it's still a beacon, a beacon of something. Whether it deserves to be a beacon is a different question, but it is still a beacon of something. What is that something? What is, what does it mean? to be America. When we say America first, what is America? What is America? And there's always been a tension about this, always throughout American history, about this question of what is America. But I want to take us back to the founding because I think, I think in the founding we discover the truth about what this country is about, but we also discover the great contradiction that has been eating away at what is America really from the beginning from the beginning. America is the land of individual rights. America is the land of political equality and the idea that all men, all men, and in theory, even though it doesn't say so in the declaration, the intention was all men, no matter the color of their skin, no matter their sex, no matter their sexual orientation, no matter where they come from, no matter their nationality, no matter anything specific about the group 
that they belong to or the characteristics of that person. All men have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. All men have a right to, free, to be free. To be free to pursue the rational values that they need in order to survive, in order to thrive, in order to do well in life, in order to achieve or try to achieve their happiness, in order to pursue happiness. They are free, free to think, free to speak, free to produce, free to create, in order to achieve their values, in order to pursue their happiness. They can be mistaken, they can go wrong, they can fail, but they are free to do so. They are free to fail, but they are more importantly free to succeed. America was founded as the country of virtue, where if you were virtuous, in other words, if you were rational, if you were productive, if you were honest, if you had integrity, then you would be successful. America was founded on the principle that virtue should be rewarded, not by government, no, by the market, if you will. That if people are left alone, indeed virtue will be rewarded. If all you do is protect them from the crooks and thieves and, and violence, virtue is rewarded. Hard work is rewarded. Ingenuity is rewarded. Productiveness, in other words, value creation, in other words, is rewarded. That is the essence of capitalism. Capitalism is the system for the virtuous. And America was the first country in human history to recognize that and to act on it, to create a system of government that protected our rights, that protected our freedoms, that left us alone to pursue our happiness, that left us alone to pursue our values. It's the first country in history that was founded on this moral principle, the principle of rights, the principle that you are rightfully free, that the only enemy of freedom, the only enemy of man, the only enemy of the mind is force, it's fraud, it's, you know, it's the use of coercion and authority against you. And that's what government is there to protect us from. And that's it. That's it. Otherwise, it should leave us alone. And that all men have this right. Again, all men, no matter your race, no matter your orientation, no matter who you are, what country you come from, what s-hole you come from, you have a right to be free. Right? No matter what place on the planet, you have a right to your life, liberty, and to pursue your happiness. That is the essential nature of this country. That is what is the foundational principle of this country. It's the principle of individualism. It's the principle that says that your background, your heritage, your country of origin, your race, all of these things are irrelevant. What is relevant is only your moral character. Are you a virtuous person? Are you a good person? Because if you are, we have created a system that you will thrive within. And if you are not, you will fail in the system. And if you are so unvirtuous as you would violate other people's rights, you will go to jail for a long, long time. But essentially, it's a system that doesn't look 
at the insignificant. It looks at what is important. In other words, it doesn't look at, again, your collective origins, but it looks at what you are, who you are as an individual, what you are as an individual, your nature as an individual. It is the only system, the first system, and really the only system that explicitly elevates the individual and makes the individual the center of the entire political system, the protection of the rights of the individual, of the whole purpose of the political system. It is based on individualism as an ideology, as an ideal, as something to strive for. And it cares little, at least, again, in theory. It cares little of where you come from, what your skin color is, what your sex is, or anything else other than what is your character? Are you a good person or not? And even there, and even there, it leaves you alone. So if you have bad character, it leaves it in a sense to the market to take care of it, as it does, as the market does beautifully. And again, only if you violate other people's rights, only if you act against somebody else's life or property are you penalized by the state. Now that is an amazing system of government. It's the only system of government explicitly created for that purpose. And it has survived 250 years. And even though it had contradictions built into it, and after the break we will talk about those contradictions, and even though the enemies of the, of the idea of individualism, the enemy of the idea of equality before the law, the enemies of the rule of law, the enemies of individualism and individual rights have fought against this great country over and over again, decade after decade after decade. The country has survived and is still, 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 in spite of everything and in spite even of this president, a beacon, a beacon for people everywhere in the world symbolizes that individualism and symbolizing that freedom and that virtue. It is still what is most associated with the idea of individual rights and individualism, and that is why it's so, so tragic, so, so tragic when our political leaders and when the culture in this country becomes more and more and more antagonistic to those original principles and we become less and less and less America and more and more just another country out there. Just another country in the S-hole list of countries in the world. That's what we have to fight against. What this country needs is to remember who it is, what it is, where it comes from, what its founding documents are, what its constitution is about, what the Declaration of Independence was a bloody war fought over. It needs to remember its origins, its needs to remember its morality. All right, when we come back, we'll continue this discussion. We'll hook it into the discussions going on right now about immigration. Uh, you're listening to the Iran Book Show. We're on the Blaze Radio Network, and we'll be right back. Israeli military veteran and radical for capitalism. It's the Iran Book Show on the Blaze Radio Network.
Ron Book Show. So today we're talking about what made America great. What is American exceptional? Why is this? Why is this country the greatest country in human history? And why? Why are we moving away from that? Why have we been sliding away from that for so long? And there are many reasons. I'm going to focus on one today. But this country was great because of its founding principles, because of the ideas at the core, the value, the founders, and the, the enlightenment environment in which they lived, the value they placed on human reason, on people's ability to think, and people's ability to reason, and to solve problems as individuals. Fundamentally, they believed in the individual who would be left free if he had the right character, if he used his mind, could achieve anything. There was no limits to what he could achieve. It was that idea of individualism, which is what makes America special, which is at the heart of America, and it is what has been in conflict from the beginning, from the beginning. I mean, and, and you see the conflict uh, on, on the chat on YouTube. Somebody writes, America became great because the British Protestant people who settled her. If you swap Japanese people out for Mexicans, I'm guessing I know whose GDP would be better. Really? Really? It's the racial composition of the people? No. That's exactly what the Founding Fathers, the ideas behind the Founding Fathers were arguing against. Now, this is the contradiction. That to some extent, the Founding Fathers accepted this idea of race-based success. And this is why the institution of slavery, of slavery was not eliminated. This is why the institution of slavery was part of the founding. And this is the great, the great, horrific contradiction in the founding of this country. A contradiction we're still paying for to this day. So while all men are created equal, well, not if you're a certain color. And by that, they instituted, they placed a wedge into American society, which is essentially collectivist, essentially collectivist, and denies the idea of individualism that you should be judged only by the, your character, by the character of you as a person, as an individual. Now, you're to be judged by the color of your skin. And if you happen to be black, you're a slave. You can be enslaved. Now, that is a contradiction that is at the heart of this country, for which the country fought a civil war in which 700,000 Americans died. It is a contradiction that survived, unfortunately, the civil war, because even though slavery was abolished, Jim Crow laws were instituted throughout much of this country. Racism was a feature of this country for much of the 20th century. Just read about the way soldiers were treated in World War I, American soldiers, black American soldiers fighting for American freedom and American liberty, how they were treated in World War I or World War II. Read about the extent and the depth of discrimination all across this country during the early part of the 20th century. That collectivism, that idea that we should evaluate people, that we should judge people, that we should treat people not based on their character, but based on the color of their skin or their national origin or where they come from, that, that, unfortunately, has also been part of the American story from the beginning. It has always been suppressed. It was always been 
a smaller part than the essential individualistic nature of the country. But it's always been there, under the surface, and sometimes on the surface, like with slavery or Jim Crow. It's always been there, fighting against the essential individualism of this country. And it has always been part of our immigration laws. It's part of the sad reality, at least since the late 19th century. Before that, we basically didn't have much of an immigration law. So collectivism and individualism have always been in conflict in the country. From the founding moment, because of slavery, it was there. And then the attitude towards blacks throughout. It gained intellectual ammunition as Americans brought in and opened their arms to, to, to collectivist, anti-reason, anti-individualism philosophies brought over from Europe in the late 19th century, early 20th century. It gained steam and it infected every aspect of American life. Not so much on the racial side, but in every other aspect, we became collectivized. We became, the statism became, the state became all important as German philosophy entered into this country and infected through the progressives and then ultimately through the Democratic Party and through socialist professors and university professors and through our universities infected the entire scope of American society, and that's where we are today, tragically. But I want to give you a little history here of immigration, because immigration was one of the places in which the battle between individualism and collectivism was fought on. And for a while, as we said, America had pretty open immigration. People came here. As long as you didn't have a disease, you weren't a criminal, you were basically allowed in. And, and, and it was often very difficult to tell if you were a criminal. There were no FBI databases or anything like that. You went to Ellis Island. You didn't have a fever. You went on some blacklist, and you were let in. And a lot of people didn't like this. They thought this was horrible. Here's a quote. In the Atlantic Magazine from 1896 from Francis Emerson Walker, who who was fought in the Civil War and who writes, the immigrants from southern Italy, Hungary, Austria, and Russia were beaten men from beaten races representing the worst failures in the struggle for existence. People who had none of the ideas and aptitudes which fit men to take up readily and easily the problem of self-care and self-government. Government such as belong to those who are descendants from the tribes that met under the oak trees of old Germany to make laws and choose chieftains. So here we have it, right? Even, even here in 1896, of course, we're not talking about Asian immigrants because in the 1890s, immigration from China was already banned. We're not talking about immigrants from Africa because there really weren't any immigrants from Africa. And I, you know, and he's not talking about Mexicans, although, God only knows what he thought about Mexicans, if this is what he thought about Italians, Hungarians, Austrians, and Russians. Austrians. <laughs> Austrians. Austrians are Germans. So, wow. <laughs> right? I mean, 
already, you know, in 1896 was seen, you know, some peoples are good and the best peoples are whom? Oh, the Germans. The Germans always somehow at the top. The Germans and the Scandinavians, they're close because they're related, I guess, genetically. I don't know. Who knows, right? So here we are. We've got Southern Europe, even Central Europe, Austria. I guess Austria is polluted by it's hung, by Hungary and Italy, its proximity to Hungary and Italy, and of course Russia, well, Russia. Um, and these are the barbarians. And how? We shouldn't have them in. We shouldn't let them in. It's Germany, Germany, Germany. Now, of course, we know where that led to in Europe just, you know, less than 50 years later. We know exactly what that led to. This idea of German grandeur, of uh, old Germany who made laws and chose chieftain under trees. You know, what the hell? I mean, what do I got against the Italians? How can you have anything against a people who, who one of them was Verdi, was, uh, you know, Michelangelo? I don't know. I guess that doesn't count. It's that German blood. You know, Wagner takes Verdi any day, I guess. I mean, wow. But that collectivism was prominent. It, it wasn't unusual. So, and, and it was becoming more and more prevalent in the United States. And I think a lot of this has to do with massive German immigration into the United States in the 19th century, bringing that German philosophy, bringing that anti-reason, anti-individualism philosophy into this country. And as a consequence, a rise, an expansion of the influence and prevalence of collectivism. And this affects the immigration laws very soon after. Uh, we see the U.S. government commission a, um, a uh, dictionary of races or peoples uh, that, that rank different peoples. You know, Slavs demonstrate, quote, fanaticism in religion, carelessness as to business virtue or punctuality and often honesty. Southern Italians were found to be excitable, impulsive, highly imaginative, and impracticable. Scandinavia, as the commission concluded, represented the purest type. We'll talk about Scandinavians in a moment. The notion, so this idea of Norwegians being somehow great immigrants to America is not new to Donald Trump. This goes back to the turn of the century. And indeed, this manifested itself in a new immigration law in 1924, a new immigration law that after the coming break we will discuss in more detail and then discuss how that ultimately morphed into the 1965 immigration law that we are living under, under today. But hold in mind throughout this the great conflict that exists within American civilization. Individualism, which is at the founding and collectivism, which is at the founding through slavery and then through the importation of European ideas grows and grows and gets more and more embedded in the American psyche. All right, you're listening to the Iran Book Show. We're on the Blaze Radio Network, and we will be back very soon. Talk to you soon. On the Blaze Radio Network.
is the Yaron Brooks Show. All right, we're talking about American exceptionalism. We're talking about individualism. And, and I want to be clear. What I mean by collectivism that, that has infected this country, really from the founding and, and since then, collectivism is this idea that what matters is the group. What matters is the tribe. What matters is which group you belong to, not your own moral character, but what the color of your skin is or what your national background is or what your ethnicity is. or That it's the group that matters in, in judging individuals. Individualism says, no, you judge an individual based on his character. And that's indeed what justice, proper justice, requires. That you judge individuals not based on the color of their skin, not based on their ethnic origin, not based on their national origin, but just based on their individual character. Collectivism holds that the purpose of the individual's life is to serve his group, whatever the group happens to be. Your life means nothing. The purpose of your life is to serve. It's the sacrifice for the group. The sacrifice of your life for the group. And of course, collectivists are always happy to sacrifice you for their group. They're always happy to sacrifice some other group for their group. The group is the standard. The individual matters not. And unfortunately, there was an element of this collectivistic attitude in the founding, in the, in the acceptance of slavery. And then there's been an element of this, of judging people based on the group they belong to from the beginning. And I gave, uh, I gave the example of, of some quotes, and, and there are lots of other quotes. Uh, lots of other quotes I can give you from the early part, newspaper headlines that sound exactly like the way we talk about the the Mexicans that we talk about, you know, uh, S-hole countries or everything. This, none of this is new. This is all goes back at least until the late 19th century when people were starting to be really upset by the people who were coming to this country, by the quality, in quotes, of the immigrants coming into this country. Too many Jews, too many Italians, too many Irish, too many of the poor, pathetic, uneducated Europeans, particularly from Southern Europe, were coming. And funnily enough, they didn't mind poor, uneducated, um, unassimilated Norwegians coming into this country. We'll get to that. The, the history of Norwegian immigration into the United States is an interesting one. So in 1924, the United States established an immigrant visa program where it was all nation origin based. Every country got a quota. And that quota, you, you could bring people in based on that quota. And for example, uh, I think the, the highest quota was given to Germany. Surprise, surprise. And Germany got 50,000 immigrant visa, visa slots, right? And the UK, Britain, got the next biggest. That was 34. Ireland was given 28. Now notice, even though Irish who came were poor, and, and a lot of people complained about the Irish in America, they were given a good slot because they were Northern Europeans. Norway got 6,400, which was the highest quota as a percentage of their population. Some more Norwegians were allowed in as a percentage of the, of the local population than any other 
uh, nationality. But this is how immigration was. Each country in Asia had a quota of about 100. And Africa, they had to compete for about 1,000 visas for the entire continent. In 1952, this was slightly amended to make it a little easier for Asians to immigrate into the United States. I guess as we got involved more in Korea and in Vietnam, there was more alertness to, uh, to, to Asian plight, I guess, and, and, uh, and a willingness to allow Asians to immigrate into this, uh, into this country. Right. Now, Throughout the, 60, throughout the 50s and 60s, there was a lot of, of, of talk about doing away with the system. It was obviously a racist system, a nation-based system. Uh, you know, it wasn't based on the quality of the individual. It was based on the group to which the individual belonged, the national group to which he belonged. And there was a lot of opposition to this, and this was fought heavily. And in the 1960s, a new, a new proposal was put forward by President Johnson. President Johnson, who had voted against doing away with the quota system 10 years earlier in the 1950s, now introduced a bill to do away with quotas. Indeed, the original, the original Johnson bill actually set the entire immigration system on one basis and that on the basis of what's called advantageous skill and education. That was the basic, that was the basis for which all immigration was supposed to be determined based on. And he had the support, uh, he had the support of uh, uh, moderate, of, of many Republicans, particularly moderate Republicans and many liberal Democrats. Conservative Democrats and conservative Republicans, particularly from the South, opposed this. They did not want an individualistic, merit-based system. And indeed, the bill passed, but it only passed, it only passed after a key provision was changed in the bill. And this is, this is the system we live under today. It was, a, it was a, a change insisted on by conservative Democrats, particularly Michael Fagan from Ohio, a Democratic representative from Ohio, who was a conservative. And what he insisted was that immigrant candidates with relatives already in the United States be given priority over those with, advantage, with advantageous skill and education. So basically he said, the number one most important characteristic should be, do they have relatives in the U.S. or don't they? That should be the most important parameter now, why did he do this? What was the thinking? Why would a conservative, generally anti-immigration, want to do this? Because the idea was that who has relatives in the United States? Well, people from countries of origin of people who are already in the United States. So the preference would be given to the kin of people who are already here. In other words, this was a way to preserve the existing ethnic profile of the United States population and discourage immigrants from Asia and Africa because there were not a lot of Asians in America, so they didn't have a lot of kin to bring over. There weren't a lot of Africans, new Africans, put aside 
the blacks who were brought here slaves, but new Africans in America. And they, they didn't have a lot of kin to bring over. But there were lots of Europeans, particularly Central Europeans, because that was the bias, Northern Europeans, and they could bring their kin over. See, even the 1965 bill was structured in a way as to preserve ethnic background, to preserve the racist identity of immigration policy, which, is, which has been a part of this country since the, since the 1924 bill, but really since the 1890s when Chinese were banned from coming into the country. Now, this, um, this phenomena of bringing in kin, which Donald Trump calls chain migration and has denounced it, has kind of backfired in the sense that it has helped more and more and more Hispanics to come in, more and more Asians to come in, and probably now more and more Africans to come in than the proponents of this bill would have wanted. So it's actually backfired on them. And today, Donald Trump denounces this. But this was put in by the anti-immigration conservatives of the time. If Johnson's bill had been allowed to pass as he suggested, it would have basically been one based on skills and education. So here we are today with a very, very mixed immigration system. A system that restricts immigration to, I think, relatively small numbers as compared to the number of qualified people who would like to come into this country. An immigration system that arbitrarily favors a kin, favors family members to people who have, who could get jobs, people who have skills. So you get a lot of older people coming here who then automatically go on Social Security, Medicare, uh, instead of young entrepreneurs. So, and you get a system now, I guess a lottery was introduced because they still wanted some countries who they felt were underrepresented to have a lottery system. You have a lottery system, which is just random. And again, kind of ethnically motivated, uh, also certain countries have it, some have countries more slots than other countries, also a complete disaster. And another thing the 1965 bill did is it took away the ability to hire seasonal workers uh, in a reasonable fashion. So what you have today is, is, a, is a horrible legal immigration system. Horrible legal immigration system. But I will note this before we take a, a quick break. That even today, if you're kin or if, you're, if you win the lottery, you still have to qualify. You still go through an interview. You still have a detailed background check. You still have to prove that you can sustain yourself in the United States and find a job or you have relatives who promise to sustain you. It's not like you just get a free pass if you're a relative or a free pass. The same qualifications that to other legal immigrants apply, still you have to go through. All right. So when we come back, I want to tie all of this into President Trump's comments, into what a proper immigration system would actually look like. I, at some point today, I want to talk about Norway, Norwegian immigration. Uh, we might talk a little bit about Norway and, and Scandinavia more broadly, but certainly about Norwegian immigration. Um, anyway, we'll be, we'll, you're listening to Iran Book Show, and we'll be back right after these messages. PhD, author, media contributor. This is the Iran Book Show, the Blaze Radio Network. 
The Yaron Brook Show. All right, you're listening to the Yaron Brook Show, and we're talking about American exceptionalism, individualism versus anti-Americanism, collectivism. And those of you who want quotas for different ethnic groups, you're not American. Those of you who want to protect your jobs against immigrants from coming here, you're not American. America was not founded on the idea that you have a right to a job, or you have a right to live with people in the same color skin you have, or, people, or, or, or that you have a right to live with people in the same ethnicity or, or country that you came from. You should have stayed in your countries. If Germans didn't want to come here to mingle with other races, they could have stayed in Germany. That is not, that is not what America is about. That is what those who are anti-American, those who want to pervert America, those who want to distort America, those who want to make America like Europe, that's what they want to achieve. Turn America into Europe. America was a melting pot. People came here from everywhere. And they melted into, not into a collective, they melted into an idea. They all adopted an idea or they failed. And that idea was individualism. That idea was treating people based on their own individual character. That's America. And if you don't believe that, you're not an American. Not philosophically, not ideologically, not morally. Yeah, you might have that American passport and you certainly can vote. But you are what destroying this country. You are what is sinking this country. And the fact that you were born here accidentally makes you nothing. It gives you nothing. Ayn Rand had a great line about that, which I have used many times. The difference between you and me is, I chose to be here. I adopted America because I believe in America. You accidentally were born here. You might be have ideas that are consistent with what America is. You might be anti-American. You were just born here. I have indicated through my action my love for the country. I have indicated through my action my reverence to its founding. I have indicated through my action by immigrating to this country the value that it represents. You have done nothing, nothing other than the accident, the biological accident of having to have been born here. All right, 1965 immigration bill is a disaster. Um, you know, this idea of chain migration, it's not really chain migration and it's overemphasized, but it's, it's not a healthy basis for immigration policy. The idea of a lottery is just silly. It's just silly. Why leave immigration up to chance? What's that got to do with anything? Uh, and what we're seeing today is a backlash against even the idea of advantageous skill in education. Donald Trump and the Republicans are proposing, for example, to dramatically reduce H-1B visas. So if we get immigration reform, which it looks like we'll get something, it's likely to make things much worse, much more collectivist, much more offensive, move away from the idea 
of skill and education and, and, and jobs and benefits. And generally, what we're, what we're going to see is an immigration system that is that just doesn't allow many people in. Just doesn't allow any people in. And will result with in much more, much, much more illegal immigration. Because people still want to come here. And people will still come here. They'll find a way to come here. Even if they have to cross the mountains on the Canadian border, they will find a way in. America's still too good of a place. Although that's 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 dissipating, but too good of a place not to want to come to. So you know, it's, it's, it's likely to get a lot worse. And, and what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, I mean, look at, in modern times, just in, in the times right now, the extent to which immigration has made America what it is now. I mean, what would Silicon Valley be without immigrants? I mean, it's, it's, hard, to even, it's hard to even contemplate what it would be without immigrants. I mean, so many of, of the startups, so it, it, there was a study done, 87 privately held startups in the United States that were valued at a billion or more, so successful startups, startups that have done very, very well, more than a billion dollars. 87, right, more than half of them, more than half of them, they did a study of these 87, more than half of them were founded by one or more people from outside the United States who emigrated to the U.S. 71% of them, 71% of them, had employed immigrants in crucial executive areas. So over 50% of the real top of the top, of the people who change the world, the people who move our economy, move our economy, they are immigrants. Yeah, immigrants. <sighs> if you look at the founders of uh, Uber, Tesla, Plantier, and many of the other high-tech companies today, they come from India, Britain, Canada, Israel, China, all over the world. If you look at the, uh, you know, if the big names, Steve Jobs, oh my God, Steve Jobs' father, you know where he came from? He immigrated to the United States. You know where from? From that s-hole place called Syria. I mean, nobody good comes from Syria. But we got Steve Jobs as a consequence. Not, not a bad deal, right? Google. Google was founded by immigrants. Um, Uber. I mean, every one of these companies, every one of the major companies that we take for granted today. You know, eBay, Pierre Omidyer, I don't know where that name is from, but he is originally from Paris, but where was he, where were his parents born? Anybody know where his parents were born? That asshole place called Iran. And of course, Jerry Yang, who was born in Asia, in Taiwan, founded Yahoo, Jeff Bezos, whose, uh, you know, father immigrated from Cuba. Reddit was founded by another, well, he's another, no, Armenian, he's not Iranian, Armenian, another asshole place in the world. Who the hell wants Armenians? Sergey Brin from Russia, but Russia used to be the Soviet Union. They used to be the asshole places of the world. And Elon Musk, 
who, in spite of being somewhat of a crony or big crony, um, grew up in, in, in South Africa and studied in Canada. I mean, these are the great achievers. Indeed, it is disproportional in America today, in industry and in tech, the value created by immigrants into this country. And, and these are people who all ultimately got H-1Bs, and these are people who the Trump administration wants to curtail their ability. Let's even do more to reduce the number of uh, high-skilled, high-immigration immigrants into this country. All right, when we come back, we're going to take a little bit longer break at the top of the hour. When we come back, I'll tell you what my view is on an ideal immigration policy, both in an ideal world and in the world we live in today. You're listening to the Iran Book Show on the Blaze Radio Network, and we're going to be back after this one. Applying the principles of rational self-interest and individual rights on your radio. It's the Yaron Brooks Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome to a discussion of radical fundamental principles of freedom, rational self-interest, laissez-faire capitalism, and individual rights. The Yaron Brooks Show starts now. All right, we're back, and today we're talking about American exceptionalism, individualism versus collectivism, and the immigration debate going on in the world and in, in this country today, of course, all in light of the president's asshole comments on, about certain countries. And let me just say, before we go on, I, I agree with them that there are asshole countries in the world. There are really, really bad countries in the world. And I'm all for judging countries and saying that country is a bad country. What I'm not for is judging individuals who come from those countries. They should be judged as individuals. Some of them are bad, some of them are good. And as, and if they made it all the way to the U.S., for the most part, you can get that most of them are going to be good. That's, that's how it works in the world. So, I'm not against evaluating countries. I'm, and, and I also think the press is making too much of the language. Uh, if you look at transcripts, transcripts of how Nixon or, or, or Kennedy or Johnson or any of these presidents talked in private. Oh, they were just as vulgar as Trump. The difference is today, everything that he says gets transmitted, plus he tweets his vulgarities. But, but presidents have been vulgar forever. But the point I was making the first hour is that America was founded on the principle of individualism. They founded on the idea of judging an individual based on his character, and that was it. But it was also founded in a contradiction, which was slavery. And that contradiction has played out throughout American history. That tension with collectivism has played out throughout American history. On the one hand, America is the land of the individual, the land of individual freedom. On the other hand, it has a tradition of racism and collectivism that is interwound in almost everything. Now, for most of its history, I think the individualism aspect has dominated. That's what explains America's success, America's prosperity. But here and there, the racist, collectivist attitudes bubble up to the surface. And suddenly, from the late 19th century till today, immigration is clearly a topic in which 
racism has played an enormous factor, enormous factor in the quota system that existed between 1924 until 1965, in the attempts to change and the successful attempts to change the immigration laws in 1965 to make them more family-oriented in order to preserve the ethnic composition of the, of the people, to the attempts today just to ban immigration, to limit immigration, to constrain immigration, legal and illegal, to limit it as much as possible, because certain people are coming here that we don't like and we don't want. And I think President Trump was very clear on that, and the attempts of the Republicans to limit even H-1B visas. And if you go back to listen to Bannon and Bannon's interviews of Trump, Bannon even resented the fact that the CEOs of Microsoft and of Google and of other high-tech companies, I think now uh, Uber, uh, 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 from South Asia, that offended him. That offended him because he's a racist. He's a collectivist. He judges people not based on their skill, not based on their ability, but based on their ethnic origin, based on the color of their skin. Nothing is more primitive a form of collectivism, which is evil in and of itself, than racism. A primitive form of evil, the worst kind of evil. Right? Now, so, I, you know, so I've kind of laid it out with the history and with everything else. Now the question is, what should be a proper immigration policy? Now let's be clear. In a truly individualistic culture, in a culture that is 100% free, that is capitalist, where the government does not have a vast welfare state, and where it truly respects the rights of individuals, there is no question. There is no question. There is only one type of immigration policy consistent with freedom, consistent with individualism, consistent with individual rights, and that is a system of immigration that is open, that allows anybody to come in as long as they are not a crook or criminal, some kind of criminal, some kind of threat to the security of the country, a terrorist affiliated with a, with a nation that is a clear enemy of the United States. So you could ban, suddenly you could ban certain Muslims as a consequence of that. And third, that you do not have a, 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 a you know, an, an infectious disease. That's it. That would be the only basis by which you could ban somebody from entering the country. That is just an issue of individual rights. And you can approach this from every single angle you want. I have a right as an employer to employ whoever I want. It's none of the government's business who I employ. If the people I employ are not a viable risk to the individual rights of my neighbors, they're not a risk to the individual rights. They're not criminals. They're not terrorists. They don't have diseases. It's none of the government's business who I employ. None. What, what business, if we believe in individual rights, then what business is it of the government to, to have a list of my employees and decide legal, legal, not legal? None of their business. I should be able to take a bus anywhere, have all the people who are going to come to work for me screened at the border and bring them into the United States with no constraint in a truly free society. 
But it's more than that. As a hotel owner, I have a right to rent my hotel space, my rooms to anybody. Why is it anybody's business? Again, as long as they're not infectious diseases, criminals, or terrorists, or other threats to the security of the United States, what is it the business of anybody? If I'm a landowner, a homeowner, what's any, anybody's, the government's business, who I sell my stuff to? I mean, I thought we believed in freedom. I thought we believed in individual rights for Americans. Don't I have a right to associate with whoever I want? Don't I have a right to sell my stuff to whoever I want? Don't I have a right to employ whoever I want? Isn't that the, the part of the foundations of what freedom means, of what individual rights mean? And of course, everybody has individual rights. Let me repeat that. Everybody has individual rights. Every human being has individual rights. Not just Americans. Now, it's great to live in a country that respects your rights and doesn't violate them, as America, for the most part, has for most of its history. But people who are born in other countries still have rights. And they have a right to buy an airplane ticket and land in an airport, and as long as they're not a threat, i.e., infectious disease, criminal, or terrorist, then what business is it of anybody where they come from, what their ethnic origin is, what their visa status is, what passport they carry? It's none of anybody's business. So you screen them for those things that are a threat, and you let them in. They have a right to buy an airplane ticket just as much as an American does, they have a right to buy a home in the United States as long as they're not forcing themselves, as long as they're not, you know, trespassing on people's private property, an airport, as long as the airport allows them in, as long as they take a taxi and the taxi driver wants to carry them. What's it anybody's business? Again, we believe in limited government, right? I thought we did. I do. Limited government. All it does is protect us from crooks and criminals and fraudsters and stuff. It doesn't protect us from... People who might take our jobs away. Somebody writes on YouTube, oh, you're on. If we had open immigration, somebody would, some Indian would come and take your job away from a hedge fund, in a hedge fund. <laughs> They're trying every day. In India, they don't have to come here. We have global financial markets. People can trade everywhere in the world. I'm, I'm being competed with every day. I don't, I'm not afraid. You shouldn't be afraid. What are we afraid of? You're afraid for your job? Work harder. You're afraid for a job? Switch jobs. The robots are coming. They're going to take your job well before an immigrant will. The algorithms are coming. They're going to take your job well before an immigrant is. So if you value your job, you know, value your job. Work on it because it ain't going to last. It's a dynamic world. So again, I'm saying in a perfect world, in a perfect situation, even if our country is in a depression or recession, it is not the job of government to protect your job. It is not the job of government to get us out of a depression. It's not a job of government to get us out of a recession. Now, if they create them because they're intervening, I'm talking about a perfect government. I'm talking about a government that only protects your rights and didn't cause the recession and didn't cause the depression because governments that protect your rights don't do that. They don't intervene in the economy. In a real free world where we truly have freedom, the only appropriate role of government 
is to protect us from crooks and criminals and fraudsters and enemies and invaders and terrorists, people who use physical force against us. It's not to protect us from economic hardships. It's not to preserve our jobs. Once they're in that, then you're a socialist. You've given it up. You're done. Once you think you have a right to a job, whoa, then the government can regulate. It has employment laws. It has all the regulatory agencies, taxes, everything. Again, I'm talking about in an ideal state. All right, you're listening to Ron Brook. You're not going to hear this stuff anywhere else on the radio. Some of you are probably relieved by that fact. Um, and, and maybe that's why many of you are not even listening because, <laughs> because of that fact. But um, this is a unique program, only here, where you hear kind of history and the truth from an individualist American, uniquely American perspective. All right, we'll be right back after these messages. This is the Yaron Brooks Show. The Blaze Radio Network. Yaron Brook. All right, we're back, and today we'd be talking pretty much the whole show about immigration, and, and I think that's all we're going to be talking about, with, <laughs> uh, given everything. Now, if you want in on the conversation, I know I haven't encouraged you to call, but, but, but I'd like to hear from you. I've, I've kind of laid it all out now, so those of you who disagree, come at me. I'm, I'm waiting uh, and eager to take you on, so... Uh, Please call in one eight 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 nine zero zero three three nine three. Don't don't lay to say, oh, Iran doesn't like to be challenged. Iran never gives the opportunity to the other side to speak up. Come on, call in. You disagree with me on immigration? Call in. You, you know your comments on YouTube. I can barely read them. They go too fast. The comments on uh, Facebook too fast. You disagree, or you have questions, or you have concerns, or you want to challenge me, or you want to agree with me. One eight 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 nine zero zero three three nine three. One eight 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 nine zero zero three three nine three. Now, granted, we don't live in an ideal world, but we don't live in an ideal world about any political issue out there. Would I advocate for eliminating Social Security tomorrow, even though I think Social Security is an immoral, redistributive system that is bankrupting America? No, I think it should be phased out because too many people rely on it. Too many people have committed themselves to it. And there has to be a mechanism by which over a generation or two we phase it out. In almost every respect, even, I don't know, regulation of banks. I don't believe banks should be regulated. I don't believe banks should be regulated. But do I believe they should all be eliminated all at once? No, you can't do that. This system would implode. you got to find a way to systematically, over time, over quickly, hopefully, this could take five years or so, get rid of them and you'd have to get rid of the Federal Reserve and you have to do a lot of things. So movement towards real capitalism, movement towards real freedom has to come, but it's going to come in steps. Do we legalize heroin and all drugs tomorrow and have people selling crack in the grocery store? Well, 
maybe, but probably you do it in steps. You do it over time. You slowly start by decriminalize it and then make it legal over time. That's true of everything. And the same is true of immigration. Do I think tomorrow we should announce to the world anybody can come, no barriers, nothing? No, but I think we need to work towards that. I think that is the ideal on which we strive. Just like I say, we need to move towards free market health care. It's going to take time because you can't dismantle Medicare and Medicaid tomorrow. It's going to take time to get to 100% free market health care. The same I say about immigration. We have to move towards a system that is 100% free, which means open immigration with the caveats I gave before. That should be the goal. That should be the goalpost. That's what we should strive to achieve. How we get there? Okay, we can talk about tactics. How we get there, as we unwind the entitlement state, as we unwind everything else, how do we open up even more and more and more the borders of this country? And I think the easiest way to do this, the easiest way to do this, is to create a job-based immigration system. If you can find a job in the United States, you get to come to the United States. Even if it means taking away a job from an American. Because I am not going to advocate for a policy that, that protects jobs. Because I think that's the road to hell. That's the road to socialism. Well, or the road to Donald Trump, e either way. So if you can find a job, and if you're not a criminal, don't have infectious diseases, or not, then you get a five-year visa to work in the United States. And if you do, after five years, if you still have a job and you're still doing well, you get another five years extension, or maybe you get a 10-year extension. We can debate all that. And then if you're here for 15 years, you get a permanent, you become a permanent resident, and you can work here forever. Now, I believe that to become a citizen should be hard. I believe that to vote, you should be able to exhibit some knowledge of the American political system and some knowledge of the American founding principles. I would even suggest that maybe even Americans before they vote should have a test. But that now I'm getting really radical. I'm not convinced just because you were born in America, you should get to vote. I, I don't think voting is that, is an automatic. You live within a particular system, you should know something about the system if you're going to participate in it. You can still live here. You can still work here. But I would even be open to the idea that the first generation of immigrants don't get citizenship. I'm fine with that. No problem. So they don't get to vote. We'll, we'll get to, to your fear of uh, I'm importing Democrats to vote Democratic. <laughs> so, you know, Anybody who has a job, a, there was a proposal in front of the House of Representatives actually a few years ago to give employment agencies who could open up branches all over the world, give them the ability to connect employers and employees. They run a background check with the FBI and whatever other agencies you need to run the background check. And if everything comes out clear, they can put a visa stamp for five years into somebody's passport and let them in. And there you've got the solution to immigration. They're not going to be welfare recipients because they got a job. And by the way, this would apply to picking strawberries just as it would apply to programming computers. I don't care what job you get, as long as you get a job. As long as you're working, 
You're making a living, and if you're not working after five years when it's renewed, the visa doesn't get renewed. You, you're kicked out. You're deported. They love deporting people. Fine. As a step towards open borders. All right. Now, how can you object to that? Well, I know you can, because you can be an economic nationalist like Bannon and say, oh, but jobs, American jobs, people from China will come and steal my hedge fund job. Who cares? You don't have a right to job. What if somebody from Milwaukee comes and steals your job? Are we gonna, are we gonna now do that? You don't have a right to a job. I certainly don't have a right. None of you have a right to a job. So simple immigration policy. You can prove that you have a job in the United States. You are in. You are in. Hey, I see some people are trying to call. Hopefully you get through. 888-900-3393. I know it's hard to call an 888 number from overseas, but it is possible. Um, so, so please do it. And then... As we become a freer and freer country, we can open up the borders more and more until you get the ideal situation at the end. At the end. Now, would Ayn Rand have been admitted under your work requirement? Good question. <laughs> I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> you got me, Chris. <laughs> no, she wouldn't have. She would have been admitted on some kind of family thing. And of course, Ayn Rand was only admitted uh, temporarily. She probably would have had to come in as a tourist and stay illegally, right? Which, you know, I don't think is a big deal. I don't, I don't believe that being an illegal immigrant is a big deal. It's not criminal. You haven't violated anybody's rights. You haven't, you haven't stabbed anybody. You haven't killed anybody. You haven't stolen anything from anybody. So, yeah, it might be a violation of the law, but come on. <laughs> you know, we, we talk about illegal immigrants as if they're all murderers. I mean, the ones who are murderers should hang. But what? What has somebody done by just coming here? I haven't violated any criminal law, not in terms of violating somebody's rights. Okay. So, um, no, I, I mean, I, the only reason I got to come into the United States was because I was allowed in as a student. So you would have to have something like student visas on top of my system of work um, because, and then when you were a student, when you graduated, if you found a job, you could stay. And if you can't find a job, you're out. Simple. But it's jobs-based. You know, somebody like, um, like a relative, you could invite in, but if after, let's say, a year, they couldn't find a job, they're out. But the emphasis would be on a job. All right, um, we've got a call from Tobias who's calling in from Denmark. Unfortunately, Tobias, I have to, I'm, I'm gonna, we've got a hard break coming up in like two minutes. I think that's right. Where are we? Yeah, two minutes. So I'm gonna hold you off until after the break. Hopefully it's not costing you a fortune in, uh, in, uh, what do you call it? Long distance charges. Um, but I will come to you right after the break. So that would be my, my solution. I, I think it works. It wouldn't be ethnic-based. It wouldn't be, again, it wouldn't be type of work-based. You wouldn't have the problem of all the immigrants coming in and voting because they wouldn't be allowed to vote first generation. And if we as a country embrace the ideas we believe in, then who cares what, you know, do we really believe, do we really believe 
that if we had self-confidence, we couldn't convince people that our system of government was good, that freedom was good, that capitalism was right, that individual rights was what government is there to protect and that's it? Do we really, are we really so weak and pathetic that we think that immigrants would come here and convince us otherwise if we had a real philosophical foundation for these ideas? I don't. I'm incredibly confident of the resilience of the American system. In spite of not having a philosophical foundation, it's done pretty well for 250 years. Imagine if we returned to a real philosophical foundation for the ideas of America, how resilient we will be to anybody coming into this country. So it doesn't scare me that they're coming from different cultures, from S-hole countries, from S-hole systems. I believe the truth wins out and that good ideas win out when you have the confidence in them. And of course, we're not going to have that open immigration, I believe in, until we have that confidence, until we stand with the founders, fight with the founders for America as you it should. You won't hear traditional political views here. This is the Yaron Brooks Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Listening to the Yaron Brooks Show. All right, we're going to take a couple of calls. It's, it's really funny. We're talking about immigration into America and the ideal. And, and we, we, I'm on the Blaze Radio Network, so I've got, I don't know, uh, you know, hundreds, maybe a thousand, maybe more uh, conservative Blaze listeners who I'm sure disagree with much of what I said today. And the only people calling in, the only people with enough interest or enough guts to call in, is one person from Denmark and one person from Hong Kong. So we got the foreigners all over this immigration stuff. You Americans, where are you? Come on. Come on, you can, you can chat away all you want on, on Facebook and, uh, and YouTube, but come on, bring it on. Bring it on live. All right, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna, uh, we're gonna talk to Tobias, uh, from Denmark. Hi, Tobias. Hey. You there? I'm there. Yeah, go ahead. Speak up. Alright, so we're, like, why is immigration from Scandinavia perceived as a good thing? Because a lot of Scandinavians or Danish that I talk to who have lived in America and have green cards and so on, their only complaints is not, there's not enough public goods. I don't understand how, like, European yeah. and North European immigration is perceived as better than African. Yeah, it's, it's funny because the fact is that if you want to guarantee socialism in America, allow more immigration from Europe. Europe, the bastion of capitalism and the bastion of individualism, invite people in from there, right? That'll guarantee, particularly Scandinavia, of social democracy, they'll all come here and they'll vote for capitalism. Yeah, where do you guys live? I mean, you're absolutely right, Tobias. I don't get it either. But more than that, what's interesting is I looked, there was a study done a few years ago about Norwegian immigrants into the United States. And it turned out that, uh, that uh, you know, Norway has always been favored through immigration policy, I guess, because they're blonde and white-skinned and, and, and closest to the ideal. And um, it turns out that the Norwegians had the hardest time assimilating into American culture, even, even uh, you know, 100 years ago. And uh, that many of them went back 
And uh, many of them, it took more generations of Norwegians to become acclimated into American society than of most other immigrant groups that on paper would seem like they were more foreign. Uh, so it truly, is, it truly is astounding how the stereotypes, the racist stereotypes are still with us. The reason, the reason people want Scandinavian immigrants is it, it has everything to do with, uh, with ethnicity and race. Uh, I'll give you another example, uh, African immigrants to, to the United States. So Africans from Nigeria and other places in, in, uh, um, in, in Africa who, uh, who have come recently to the United States are some of the most educated immigrants in, uh, in, in America. Um, they, they're very entrepreneurial. They actually tend to be much more pro-capitalism than many immigrants, than European immigrants are. So the, the whole discussion is stupid. I mean, it drives me nuts. Uh, if, if you look at the actual data, n none, none of this has any basis. I mean, uh, so yeah, I, I agree with you. The, the Scandinavians who come here are much more likely to move us towards socialism than any other ethnic group that we could allow into the, into the, uh, into the United States of America. If that was the foundation on which people wanted to base their immigration policy, as it seems Donald Trump does. Thanks, Tobias. Thanks for bringing yep. that up. All right, we're going to take a call from uh, Arjun in uh, Hong Kong. You there? Uh, hi, Dr. Brooke. Um, am hey. I on? Yes, you are hi. on. Uh, hi, Dr. Brooke. Yeah, um, hello? Yes, go ahead. Oh, hi. So, yeah, um, I have a question um, <clears throat> regarding um, essential flaws uh, versus peripheral flaws in a culture or a country. So I got, I got three examples um, on one side and two on the other to contrast the difference. Sure. So on the one hand, um, you know how uh, many people criticize in, um, sorry, America for its approach to the Indians, uh, yeah. but Ayn Rand explained how um, that's the exception, those abuses, and not the rule. And the Indians yeah. were the ones abusing the, the um, settlers many times. And then that's one example. And another example is, say, um, you know, during the revolutionary times, um, Americans uh, boycotted British goods and, and uh, prevented trade of tea. So someone might misinterpret that as protectionism when it's actually um, fi um, fighting for liberty. Um, and then, I think, so I think that's things, absolutely right. So they, they're definitely essential yeah, and, flaws and, and, and non-essential flaws the other or, hand, or, or exceptions. And, and, and then, but, then there, there are essential flaws which can be pointed out on the, on the other hand, like, say, the Spanish Empire, which was trying to actively oppress people and convert them forcefully, for example. Yeah. So that's the contrast. Or the caste system or in India, which is an essential flaw. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Uh, no, I think the, that's right, example, but I think... The Romans, right, They um, during the First yeah. and Second Punic Wars, first one, they didn't do it properly, second one, they defended themselves properly, and the third one, they just wanted to annihilate them for yes. irrational reasons. Yes. Right? That, that, that's the contrast I wanted to make, and could you help me... Uh, yeah, no, that? I think that's right, but you have to be careful, because... Even when things are exceptions, if you see too many of those exceptions, it is a sign of weakness. Even though I think racism was an exception most of American history, it's not really because you start seeing a pattern. You start seeing a pattern for slavery, Jim Crow laws, you start seeing an immigration policy, maybe even in the way the Indians were treated, the way the Indians are treated today. American Indians are treated... I, it's so horrible. It is so disgusting the way we treat American Indians today. Um, we treat them as, as if they're little children who can't help themselves. So it, it becomes a significant flaw if it's not addressed. 
if it's not dealt with. And I think, unfortunately, that, that until the 1960s, suddenly racism was not addressed in the United States properly. And, and one could argue it still hasn't been addressed partially because of the reverse racism of the civil rights laws. Uh, the treatment of Indians has never been fully addressed, and therefore we still treat them really, really badly. And, and I think that eats away at, at, at what it means to be fully American. So even when a, a flaw is not fundamental, if it sticks around, if it's not corrected, if it's not dealt with forthrightly, it becomes worse and worse and worse and can eat away at the fabric of, of, of the good. Uh, and then, of course, systemic flaws like caste system in India or, or, or uh, what the Romans did or so on, you know, they can be improved on. So as India's open up, opening up, the caste system will slowly disappear, particularly if there is an intellectual foundation for doing away with it, 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 it greater and greater respect for rights and, and individualism and so on. So... So I, I, it's not a it's not a, a fundamental flaw. It's not a flaw that cannot be eliminated. It cannot be fixed and corrected. So um, hopefully that helps you out a little bit. Does that um, make sense? Yes, yes, it does. Um, yeah, well, thank you. Great. Well, thanks for calling. Really appreciate it. Lines are still open. Eight 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 nine zero zero three three nine three. So feel free uh, to call in uh, if you are uh, interested. All right. So. People are asking, well, all right, what about, um, what would you do today? Well, I've said I would have an employment-based immigration system with no quota, with no limits to how many people can come in. I would restrict the ability to vote by not making them citizens. I would restrict the ability to receive welfare because they're coming to work, and if they don't continue to work, their visa's not renewed, so they can't get, so they're out, so why would they be welfare recipients? They've got a job. Um, you know, what else? I'm, 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 open, I'm open to other uh, arguments against the system, right? Uh, their children will vote Democratic. But again, I, I think that's a bogus argument. Americans vote Democratic. Young people vote Democratic. We should ban, we should extend the voting age to 30 so that young people can't vote because they all vote Democratic. Or we should, uh, let's see, we should do this... Um, um, Jews all vote Democratic. 70% of Jews vote Democratic. We should stop letting Jews vote. Blacks vote Democratic, 90 plus percent. We should definitely ban them from voting, right? No, I mean, it's ridiculous. You can't set policies based on how people vote. And I would argue, and I've argued many times, and continue to argue, that the reason immigrants vote Democratic, particularly immigrants from places like Africa and Asia and, and Latin America, is because... Republicans have alienated themselves so much because Republicans come across as so viciously anti-immigration. And don't tell me it's illegal immigrants. No more. That lie has been has gone out the window. We have seen the truth with Donald Trump's immigration policies. We've seen the truth with what Republicans are proposing in Congress. They don't resent just illegals. They resent immigration, period. They don't want immigrants period, or as few as possible. So um, I don't understand. I don't understand the resistance to this. I don't understand where it comes from. I, I, and, and, and there are those, let me just say this, and then I will, after the break, take uh, Maya's call. Um, there are those who say uh, they're changing the, uh, the ideological composition of the United States so we should have a test. 
an ideological test to come into America. Really? Do you want Obama writing that test? You want George W. Bush writing that test? Do you want, God forbid, Donald Trump writing that test? Do we want to give politicians more power over our lives than we, they already have? Really? To decide who I can invite to come and work in my factory or in my hedge fund or to live in my home or to visit me? We want politicians to determine which ideologies, ideologies are acceptable and which are not? Really? I mean, that, that's mind-boggling. I mean, generally, for anybody who believes in limited government, we want more government when it comes to immigration, but less in other things. We want to give the, the power of the government now to build walls and to have more inspectors and to have more, more people controlling the borders and the airports and looking over names. We want to give the people who you don't trust to, 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 to run our roads or run our schools or run anything like that, but you trust them, or healthcare, or, but you trust them to manage the border. You trust them to decide who should come in and who should not come into the country. You trust them to build a wall. Amazing to me that anybody who believes in limited government wants a wall. All right, you're listening to Iran Book Show. Um, point of view you won't hear anywhere else on the dial. And we'll be right back right after this. Best-selling author, prolific media contributor, PhD in finance. This is the Yaron Brook Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Show. All right. So um, we don't have a lot of time. I have two callers. Let me just comment on one thing that I saw on uh, on uh, on YouTube. Uh, Rob was asking, just trying to understand you on. If an immigrant wants to come and take my job, work for less money, is that okay? Absolutely, that's okay. That's terrific. I benefit from it because the goods that he's being produced are going to be cheaper. I then have more money to invest, which will create more jobs, hopefully for you. It will raise the productivity of labor and other jobs. It all is win, win, win. You in the moment will lose your job, but so what? You're gonna, you're probably gonna lose your job at some point to, cause your company's gonna move their uh, manufacturing to, uh, Mexico. Or you might lose your job to a robot, or you might use your job to an algorithm, or you might just lose your job to somebody in Alabama who's willing to do it cheaper, or you might lose your job to a competitor who is just more efficient than you. The government has no role in deciding any of those. It's none of the government's business. The fact is that we know freedom works. And I'm saying if freedom works, you are better off living under freedom in which people can come into the country and take your job than you are living under a non-free society in which the government decides which jobs can go, which jobs can stay, where they can be, where they can be. That is statism. That's not America. That is Europe. You want to have job security? Go to Germany or to Denmark or to Sweden. Stay away from my America. All right, Maya. Hi, Maya. Go ahead. Hi, Aaron. Um, I've been wanting to talk for a while, but thank you for addressing this topic. I think it's hugely important. Um, and I know it's very divisive, especially within sort of the objectivist community. Um, 
a quick background. So I, you know, my my parents immigrated here from from Pakistan back in the 70s when you could kind of still do that, um, you know, because, you know, they, they actually they were my uncle came here first because they needed pharmacists. You know, it was, again, like a yep. lot, very job based back then. Yep. So, um, so, you know, he came in and then again, because of the family thing, they were allowed to bring us all in. Um, now that would be impossible. Um, my husband came here, unfortunately, like on a, a fiance visa. He hated that because he loves America. Like he, <laughs> this is what people don't get is that is that no one loves America like the people that come here Absolutely. wanting it and and Absolutely. having these dreams. And they don't know. They don't know what that passion is like. He started a business, came here with two suitcases, started a business. We're now employing, you know, um, like five, six people here. Um, you know, it's still early days, but, but we're doing it. I mean, he, he loves it. Um, and no, no one else has that passion. Um, I mean, sure. A lot of people do, but yeah, no, absolutely. Immigrants have a unique perspective and they, and they make a real effort to come here. And if they've made that effort, it usually indicates that they, they value something about America that I think most Americans take for granted and don't value anymore. Yeah. So, you know, like we do, we've come from shithole places. We know what those places are like. We know what shithole is like. Yes. <laughs> yes. All right. You can't say it. Oh, asshole. Okay. I mean, I've been good until now. All right. Thanks, Maya. Absolutely. I mean, the benefits, I try to say a little bit about that with Silicon Valley, but I could say a lot more about the entrepreneurial spirit, about the benefits we get from immigrants. They create many, many, many more jobs, if that's your worry. Then they, then they consume. The world is not a zero-sum game. It's a trade win-win. That's what free markets are about. The more people come, the more they create, the more they produce, the more they innovate, the more jobs they are, the more wealth is, the higher the standard of living. It is not true that your success is at my expense, but that's a whole other topic. Okay, I want to take one more caller, another foreigner we have here, Reem, in Israel. Hi, you're on the Iran Book Show. What's up? Hey, uh, Iran. Yes, you have to speak quickly because I don't have a lot of time. I'm always up to a hard break. Okay, okay. So this is Ram from Israel. Um, yeah. You kind of answered it already. Um, I I posted it on the chat uh, about the, you know, um, uh, open borders replacing us all. And then you gave even a better example about the machines eventually yeah. replacing all of us. Yeah. I just wanted to lay the, the context for that because I was arguing uh, for capitalism with my father. And he kind of said, um, like, well, imagine what will happen if, the, you know, uh, there's open borders and the country accepts anybody who wants to come in. And, like, I'm an IT guy, a tech guy, and, yep. you know, there's a lot of people in, who can do much better job than me. Um, so I will be replaced. And yep. then I continue this line of thinking, well, I mean, you, like your own, you can be replaced this hedge fund manager thing that, that I wrote, um, like there's a billion, you know, people in China who can do a better job at it. Probably and eventually, not, even okay. Machines, <laughs> okay. Uh, and eventually machines or, you know, you can train somebody uh, to. In so the, we really uh, coming up on a break. So you have to speed it up if there's a question at the end of this. Yeah. So I'm just, I'm just wondering if the logical conclusion of capitalism is, you know, uh, us, all of us, you know, either by machines or humans being, no, no, no. So I get it. No, the division of labor doesn't work that way because of comparative advantage. You have to go study a little bit of economics, but comparative advantage, even if I am better at everything than you, it's still worth my while not to do everything, but to just do the thing that I am 
better by more than you are and let you do the second best thing and let other people do other things. The more people there are, the more jobs that are needed, the more goods need to be made, the more services need to be provided. We can't imagine the kind of jobs that are needed in the future that will fulfill our needs, our desires, because human needs and desires are infinite. So there is no limit to the number of jobs that will exist. Now, it's true, machines are going to change the way we live. And the integration of man and machine is not obvious and not simple how that's going to play out. But we know that if we are rational, if we use reason, and if we are free, good things are going to happen. You will find a better job than you have today because just because somebody else competed away your job. I mean, all kinds of jobs get made available. Look at, look at the world today. More people are working today. More people are working today than in any point in human history. We've got a billion plus Chinese working in industry and in services. We've got Indians. We've got Africa waking up. And yet, there's still plenty of room for economic growth. There are plenty of jobs that are unmet. There are plenty of entrepreneurs starting new businesses, creating new jobs. It grows and grows and grows. It's infinite. There's no limit to how much stuff we need to make, produce, create, build. There's no limit to how much wealth human beings can consume. There is no limit to these things. To think in terms of zero-sum games, to think in terms of finite universe is a massive, massive mistake. So don't. And, and you want to embrace competition. You want to embrace the idea that the best person qualified for a particular job should do it. That will create a better world for you and for everybody around you. And I don't have the time to run through the math of comparative advantage or the time to run through a division of labor society or to give you the history of what the world was like before we had capitalism and freedom where people competed for jobs, God forbid. Remember, in the old days... 300 years ago, you belonged to a guild. And nobody could take your job away from you. It was yours for life. And that was it. And you were born into a guild. And nobody could take that job away from you. We've come a long way from that. And life has improved dramatically from that. But don't be static. How, how much do we have? A minute, okay. And don't be static. You have to work hard to keep your job. Your job is not just going to be there. Because not so much because of immigrants... But because of technology, all of us, yeah, my job is probably much more likely to be taken away by an algorithm than it is from somebody from China and India. So you have to, you have to be flexible. You have to know a lot of stuff. You have to think. You have to produce. You have to, you have to, you have to be willing to change. All right. Today's show was all about immigration. Now I will be quitting the blaze. So this is the, we're gonna, this is one of the last three shows. We've got two more shows in the blaze. So you can follow me at yourronbrookshow.com for all my other podcasts. If you're interested, there's, there's a, I produce a lot of material. Also, subscribe on YouTube to my channel. There's tons and tons of content there. And uh, stay in touch, all you Blaze listeners. I'll be back next week. You're listening and then the final to the Yaron Brook Show on the Blaze Radio Network.